Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups uh, by Jeff. Uh, if you want to get free content, if you like free stuff, uh, you could go to the free content section on Focus Compounding, and you will have investment write-ups going all the way back to 2005 for free. Um, and of course, if you want to learn more about our money management services, reach out to me, Andrew Kuhn, at Andrew at FocusCompounding.com. Let's start a conversation. Let's chat um, and see if there's an opportunity for us to work together. So in today's podcast, we are going to continue on with our bargaining power episode uh, that we had put up last week. Of course, per usual, we ran out of time, uh, two hours in, over two hours, and we're running out of time, which I think uh, says a lot about the density of the podcast and the type of material that we're putting out there. So we're going to continue on with that uh, today. But before we do that, we could quickly hit on the markets because I feel like there's been a lot of that, that has happened uh, in the market since our last podcast. The S&P 500, where we sit today, is down 14%. A 10-year yield, uh, 2.661%, Jeff, which that's been a huge move mm -hmm. in uh, the bond market it was a large move last week and even from you know the week before that. So yields have really come down a lot. Uh, crude oil, 94, spot 5.1, and natural gas, 7, spot 8.05. After we recorded last week, Jay Powell had come out and said that the Fed was going to raise the Fed funds rate, 75 basis points. Uh, but what caught the market by surprise is that you know the commentary that happened after uh, the announcement of the 75 basis point uh, rate hike. He had said that they have front-loaded uh, their rate hikes and they suspect to be probably you know 50 basis points from here on out, uh, but that they're going to be much more data-dependent and that they think they have reached their neutral level, uh, being you know anywhere from two spot two five to two spot uh, five zero. Um, that took the market by surprise and. Uh, yields started to fall and the market started to rip a little bit. Um, any thoughts on that, Jeff? I mean, here you have inflation in real terms. GDP has contracted again. And as you're looking at the screen right now, the curve continues to invert. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think a lot of people are a bit shocked. I mean, it seems to me like that was a pretty dovish meeting and that when Powell is saying they reached their neutral rate, Meaning if they go anything above it, that will be a sign of them contracting activity. And if they go back down, that'll be a sign of them stimulating economic activity. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think the market was kind of surprised uh, to hear that, which is why the stock market has rallied a significant amount since last meeting. Um, I think the neutral rate is probably above two and a half percent. I don't know if it's three and a half, four and a half, what, but it's closer to four. Um I think the issue that we've talked about before is that the biggest risk with inflation is that you would have inflation be higher than their target over a full cycle, 
for multiple recessions. So the rate may be high enough to cause a recession, but that doesn't mean it's high enough to stop inflation. Um, and so you might have to have repeated recessions over a period of time to achieve that. I mean, well, when we know in real terms that the economy is contracting, do you think rates have peaked? I know that's a tough question and we're not macro investors, but what are your thoughts on that? Uh, no, I don't think that rates have peaked. We've spoken about before how if you really wanted to combat inflation, they should raise interest rates to like 5 to 6% if they were really serious about doing that. Right. So the issue here is similar to um, some other times, like right after World War II and some other periods in U.S. history, where they felt they had a pretty good read on the idea that some of the inflation, some of the, the shortages would be transitory, as they said. And so they're counting on that coming down in addition to their increases in, in rates. So I think they know that the rates are not high enough given the actual inflation levels they're seeing, but they expect a lot to come down anyway without uh, action that they take. Um, absent inflation coming down anyway, um, I mean, Summers and some other people wrote a paper, for instance, giving estimates of how high rates would have to be to achieve that great a decline in the um, consumer price index to get it down to the levels that they're talking about. Uh, wanting, let's say, theoretically, that's 2%. Um, so they obviously are counting on a large decline from other factors coming in anyway. Uh, that's also in past times when the Fed has been behind, like in the 60s and 70s, that was also a factor, anticipating um, declines happening anyway. Uh, and often the rate increases were enough to cause a recession, but they weren't enough to cause inflation to get down to the levels that they wanted to have. Um, that's a big part of this, I think. People talk a lot about like trying to achieve a soft landing or balancing trade-offs between things. I don't know that it's realistic to think that you could reduce inflation um, without, achieve, without causing quite a recession. Uh, and so I'm not even sure that it's a realistic goal to have that you would try to bring inflation down um, to the level that you want without uh, admitting that you're going to do it through uh, causing a recession and probably a more major recession than something like what happened in 2000 or something like that. Um, and they've kind of said that because they've said we want, although they said they're that they're at neutral now, uh, they've said that they want the economy to run below potential, which in their terms means that they need to have the rate above neutral um, and to run it below potential, meaning they just want very slow growth, I guess you could say, instead of um, a recession. There's not a lot of room. Above neutral in real terms, correct? Yeah. Obviously, in real terms, they're way off of what they need to be. The rate is very, very accommodative. Um, you know, the, we talked about this with housing and stuff. By some measures, it's more accommodative than at any point in uh, when people thought they were stimulating a lot more, because the it's we're talking about a nominal rate, um, and we now have a, quite a lot of inflation because you have a lot more money. Um, you can see that when you can see some of the facts of that, and when we talk about things about like financial conditions, the banking system. 
for instance, people might notice the rates that banks are paying you have are diverged a lot from the Fed funds rate, and I think they're going to stay diverged. Um, they don't have a great need, most of them, for deposits. They don't want deposits. There's some regulatory issues for big ones, for instance, if they have the deposits that they don't want anyway. Um, so you're going to need to take a lot of money in the system and basically put it back to the Fed, like trillions of dollars. Um, so the Fed funds rate will be possibly a lot different than bank deposit rates that banks pay. On the other hand, because of that, you may have, you not may, I think you will have um, a decline in bank deposits, which is un unusual. I mean, it happens, but um, we haven't seen that in a very long time that deposits at banks will decrease. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells us we already know there's too much money. I mean, too much money was created. Um, and so they have to find a way to idle that money. You don't want that money being spent and stuff like what was happening in the pandemic. That's a major factor here is that a lot of money was created. And that's just a question of how that money is being used. If you can keep that money from going into really the banking system and into people's hands, uh, then you don't necessarily have a problem. But when it was going into stimulus, it was a major problem. Do you think if they just explain, look, we printed a ton of money, the pandemic and the economy globally was a once in a century unprecedented situation. And we are experiencing sort of the hangover from that. And it's got to work its way through the system. In the next few years, you may have pretty, you know, unusual numbers. I mean, do you think that would be a better way of going about this whole process instead of having, I mean, I don't want to get political, but the talk of, oh, we're actually not in a recession and that's not the definition of a recession and blah, blah, blah. I mean, do you think right. if they actually explained, hey, this was just a very crazy thing, there really wasn't a playbook for this, we did our best, we actually did come out the other side and there's going to be just some repercussions from that? Uh, Maybe. I mean, it doesn't really matter what caused it. I mean, it happens to be caused by people who are still in office and who made the decisions and stuff, whether at the Fed or in other places, for some of it and for some not. Um, but, I mean, it's a shock whether you caused it or something else caused it, whether it's caused by COVID or your policies or what. And you just have to move forward from where you are now. Um, where you are now is nominal growth that's unacceptably high. I mean, the easiest way, the, F the Fed doesn't do this. But in many ways, the easiest way longer term to know what Fed policy would be right would be to target nominal GDP growth. Uh, it's easy for us as investors to think of. It's easy for companies to think of. We can see when it goes way off of what it should be. Um, it's a problem right now that the kinds of things we're talking about, about saying there's a recession because we have two quarters of negative growth. The negative real growth is so low uh, and the inflation rate so high that it does not feel like a recession to companies. Uh, the, the actual rate of nominal GDP growth, in fact, is probably, a, it's not probably, it is uh, in those quarters above what it should be if you were trying to accomplish 2% inflation, for instance. It's too high. So it's been too high for a long time. And you can see that with a lot of companies being able to report uh, nominal earnings and nominal sales um, that are actually above the trend of what they would have been at before COVID happened. So um, there are some that aren't, though. We can see that like it is affecting some parts of the economy. Uh, the financial conditions have not tightened a lot. Uh, in fact, they, they, they started to, but in a lot in a large parts of the economy, they haven't. They have in technology things. They have in venture capital things.
So where you see a big difference, obviously, is when we talk about things like the ad agencies, the Omnicoms and the Interpublics and stuff versus the FANGs. The FANGs are shrinking in real terms, obviously, shrinking a lot, actually. Um, and they're losing a lot of market share to other sorts of companies because we can see that in real terms, you actually have growth expected at ad agencies and places like that. And you have significant shrinking in real terms um, because you have flat to slightly down revenue at some FANGs. Um, and the same thing would be true when I say FANGs with um, things that are not even um, just advertising, but even user numbers and stuff. Um, so media things, so both media outlets that, um, like Netflix or something and things like Facebook. Um, and that must reflect, we talked about this with Snap and, and some other companies, it must reflect changes in advertising spending and in attitudes from companies depending on what kind of company they are. So we have to be seeing a shift in which companies that are advertising for Bitcoin or food delivery or whatever um, have pulled back in a big way and other companies haven't. So the, you know, e-commerce part of the economy, the um, more venture part may contract and may see a real recession that feels like a real recession from what they're doing. But the offline part of the economy is not um, feeling tight financial conditions. And then I guess we just have to let it work through the system. I mean, I, be, I think basically what you're saying is it's really the excess has been pulled out of the market. And that's the part of the market that is feeling like they're in a recession. Right. Yeah. A big, a huge part of how the Fed actually works. The Fed doesn't talk a lot about it. I mean, they know how they do it. But we talk about the wealth effects stuff with um, uh, what bonds and stocks people are holding and the idea that the Fed kind of crowds out people from other uh, crowds out investors from certain assets forcing them into more and more risky assets um the other thing that they have a really big effect on usually in most recessions and, and most booms um is on housing and in part because of housing also cars and it's hard to see right now exactly what effects they're having on that so they move rates a lot um but some of those have to do with inventory issues and stuff it's not clear um, obviously the price things that you're seeing in both of those are not what you would want if you were trying to slow down the economy, but there you've increased mortgage rates a lot, um, from where they had been and you've made houses relatively unaffordable. Theoretically, you've made cars relatively unaffordable, though still there's inventory issues with both houses and cars. Um, if all the, um, houses that are being built are eventually finished and, dumped on the market maybe you achieve what you were going for there but normally you would have had a bigger effect on cars and housing which have a very big effect on the rest of the economy i don't know how much effect the fed has outside of things like um markets that we talk about stocks and bonds uh and cars and uh housing especially um it's very uh, indirect their effect on other parts of the economy so there's not a lot that they can do to slow down inflation in other parts of the economy except through those things and there might be bigger factors involved in some of these um that might make it hard for them to have a fast effect i think the most likely thing of what we're really seeing is just that they would rather wait um and see what's happening in things like housing and cars i mean the way that they combat all of this stuff is by making it more difficult to borrow and to engage in speculative activity and 
they might be a far way from doing that in, in most of the things that we're talking about. Um, I don't think they're far, they're not a far way of doing it from the kind of online things that we talked about. They are having the effect there, but I don't know if they're having as much of an effect on other things. We are seeing some changes and stuff that has to do with housing and maybe over several months, we'll see a big change in that. Um, they've, but still for a lot of these things, the actual level of the rates that we're talking about is not, it isn't exactly crushing the, uh, wouldn't exactly be crushing the demand that you would have normally for it. So if you look at what expectations for inflation might be, you look at what mortgage rates are, that's not a very expensive cost to borrow um, in those terms. Uh, I think the fact that house prices were so high, are so high, um, is what makes it unaffordable. But the actual cost to carry it in real terms is is not at some level that would definitely be a big problem. And uh, you could get there. And if they wanted to, that would be an easy way to really slow down the economy a lot. That is how they did it in, um, what, about 40 years ago. A major factor was just really hitting the housing market hard. And I don't know if they'd have as much a big as big an effect on that now. Got it. So... We've spoken a lot about Celsius on the podcast. At one point, you were drinking like, I don't know, 20 a day. Did you see this uh, news co yeah. uh, come out the other day that PepsiCo, they took a $550 million stake in Celsius, um, uh, which is part of a long-term distribution deal, uh, and that it's roughly a 8.5% minority stake mm -hmm. in Celsius. Isn't that pretty yeah, crazy? Now, Pepsi has a history of making bad acquisitions in energy drinks. The last two they did were really bad. They did uh, Rockstar they bought, right, for like $4 billion or something. And yeah, I don't know uh -huh. that there's much of left of Rockstar anymore. I mean, it still exists and it's sold through things. But without Pepsi, I, I don't know if there would be much. Um, and what was the other one they did? Bang or something like that? They also did a similar investment as they have in Celsius. Yeah. So they've tried almost, I don't know every couple of years or something to do an acquisition like this. Um, Celsius is growing very fast and this would hopefully get them into a, a relationship that would help them out over time mm -hmm. with uh, Pepsi. What Pepsi has is always trying to do this. So um, that's the issue that uh, they have as a company is trying to do this all the time. I mean, can you think of another company that has had, at least in recent memory, just explosive growth like Celsius, where a few years ago, I mean, what, 2019, it was basically a microcap, and now it's a, as a quick FS has it, $7.4 billion right. company. Well, I mean, it now crazy. has, what, five, six-something years like that in a row where it's grown more than 30% a year. It's grew over 100%. Um, yeah, it's... Very impressive. Um, a huge part of it, of course, is the margin expansion. Uh, the margin, the multiple expansion. Um, yeah. So that is a major factor that we talked about before. When we were first looking at it, was what, four times sales, something like that? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So we talked about that and said, and it was several other times. And now it's at, you know, uh, it, it's 15 to 30 times. So that is a major part of it. We could get it updated. It, it, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. 18 times sales. Now, you know, as a, we've said before, though, as a part of a different system like Pepsi, um, you know, maybe it would be worth a lot more. Mm -hmm. Pepsi only bought a small stake in it. You know. Yeah, 8.5%. Yeah, they said mm -hmm. the long-term distribution deal. But 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, my advice always is don't buy stocks that trade at 18 times sales and things like that. Double digit sales, price to sales. You don't want to own things like that. Um, this is also a very, very competitive industry. Um, so they have a strong position in it. Uh, they have the best shelf space, but you do see, uh, that there's lots of other, uh, companies coming in lots of other brands that are copying many of the same things that they did making it look much the same way and they seem to sell uh fine too if they get that space i think they have advantages obviously in getting that space and, and pepsi might help with that but i think that the price to sales that we're talking about is way too high to pay for any company yeah today right but the point that interests me is you know at what point when you buy a company at four times sales um does it finally jump to not finally? I mean, because this doesn't happen often, but go from like four times to 10 to 15, or in this case, you know, 18 times. And like you said, I mean, look, I mean, when you have how many years of just absolutely explosive growth, that's when you could get that huge multiple expansion. I mean, multiple contraction is a bitch, but multiple expansion is a wonderful thing if you yeah, can get and, it. Yeah. Uh, and Celsius is a very unusual company, very unusual stock in that it now, you know, it's easily, you know, um, had huge returns. It would be the kind of thing we talk about with hundred baggers and all that, despite really not having earnings and not having earnings for a very long period of time, yeah. having fairly similar loss sizes. I mean, it did expand a little bit there when their sales went up, but losing pretty similar amounts for a long period of time. It's grown a lot in the last few years, but still doesn't really generate, um, uh, does not really generate, um, profit. It also has expanded its shares outstanding a lot too. Um, so it's not as good, right. It's not as good as it appears on that measure. So, uh, you know, it, let's say to be a hundred bagger, if it was a $70 million company and then it became a, uh, $7 billion company, which I think it is now, um, then you would have a hundred bagger, but of course you only have a 30 bagger or something in, in this stock. If that was true, because you've diluted your share count by, um, three or actually four times now. So it's four times now. Yeah. So in less than 10 years, you've gone from 20 million shares to 78 million. So that's a, you know, that hurts it a little bit. Uh, it's, I, I just warn people that it's very unusual um, to have a company that's gone up, a stock that's gone up this much. This is, I think, what people always imagine how stocks work, that they're going to have losses throughout those 10 years yeah. and they're going to issue a lot of shares, but it's going to work out this way because their revenue did go up uh, 30 times in the period we're talking about. Um, so, and then also like we talked about with uh, monster or something like that, they've also had an improvement in gross margin, uh, not some huge improvement or something, but it, it hasn't gotten worse. Um, but it's basically an increase in the revenue as we talked about. Yeah. I mean, this is what dreams are made of. If you're going to invest in micro caps, right? Maybe not so much the shares outstanding being going up and you being diluted, but just like the growth that the company has had and then you know, the, the change in market value, the growth in revenue. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, if you look at like the income statement, I mean, last year they generated $314 million in sales and, uh, you know, 4 million in net income. But I think you're obviously they're taking all of that, um, potential income maybe and spending it on the business marketing and, and operating expenses and stuff like that. I mean, that's yeah. what they would say. The anyways. issue here, I think is that uh, they're at about 30, I don't know, 33 times or something gross profit, um, let's say. 
it, the, the price to gross profit thing is really a problem when we talk about companies uh, that's very hard to fix. And uh, as a stock, that doesn't mean the company won't do well. It's just that the price you're paying is so incredibly high. And so I'd be careful about that. What you're saying is exactly true, though. They take all of their gross profit and spend it on SG&A. Um, although, to be fair, some of that is... Uh, if we look at cash flow statement, I think we can see that some of that is them basically giving the shares to themselves and others. Um, yeah, that's a major factor, right? But although it, they'd still have significant negative cash flow from operations, yeah, they've rarely ever had positive cash flow from operations, even giving them back credit for stock-based compensation. So you had to put more capital into this business all the time, which makes sense because it's growing very, very fast. The growth rate is obviously beyond the the rate of that anyone could achieve a return on capital. Um, so, and you can see that in the cash from financing stuff. So it's a it's this brand thing, but it's like a venture thing the way that it's run. Um, yeah, but as we looked at with you know hundred baggers, it's um almost never the case that you have a company like this. The other thing to be careful about is as you see here, and we could see in the quarterly numbers and stuff, you have to be very confident. Maybe Pepsi is, um, although I think Pepsi had an issue actually once with some company they acquired, so they might not be. Um, uh, you have to be very confident with the management team that you have, the organization, how honest they are about things, because you have a massive increase in working capital. So that is something to keep in mind. The increase in working capital since the pandemic has been really dramatic. Um, we're talking about a company that uh, in March 2022 quarter, which is the last one, they had a slight outflow for working capital, but they had a $60 million outflow in the end of 2021. And if we look at the overview, um, we could see that their entire sales, um, yeah, I mean, like their sales for the entire year of last year was, so that was about half. They, they increased working capital in one quarter by about half of their sales for the total year. But that was correct, and they were able to sell it because they then went up to uh, their growth rate doubling the next year. Peloton probably did the same thing and was wrong and it collapsed. Walmart, Target, they were wrong. Yeah, they increased their inventory too much. But um, the increase in inventory is obviously expecting some growth like that because uh, it's pretty impressive because when you think about it, if their last year they grew 140% in revenue and they managed to actually have a use of working capital for... Um, uh, for cash flow uh, from operations purposes, um, that means that they grew their inventory even faster, uh, presumably. I mean, there's receivables and other factors in there too. Uh, and then, of course, you don't know, like, everyone that they're selling through, how quickly things are selling at the end point. But they obviously know that, and they've achieved a lot of uh, fast sales growth. Yeah, it's absolutely impressive. You had mentioned price to gross profit. Is that a measure that you use often? Yeah, I think generally price to gross profit would be a very, very important number. There's not much, there's a little bit with some sp very special situations, but there's not much most investors can do on the outside looking at a company or most managers to improve the gross profit situation. That's something that's very baked into the economics of what business you're in. If you see here, there's some years, 2020 was a strange year and 2012 was a strange year, but leaving those out, the actual variation in gross margin is very small. Uh, it's not very small. It's actually not small for a company in this industry, but it varies between 40% uh, plus or minus 2%. As you can see here, that's what it always is. So you got a 38% margin some years, you got a 42% other years. Um, in other words, that's what 5% that, that is 1 20th of the, the mean shift 
um, in your range, sort of, with the exception that there are these two odd years, but I think those are very odd years. Um, so you can vary sales a lot more than you can vary gross margin, as you can see here. Sales are growing by huge numbers, and yet gross margin doesn't vary all that much. That's true for most companies. Um, it's also useful because if we look at another company, let's look at like Micron or something so I can show you the reverse. Um, so you have a company like this. This is important because you see that the gross margin is very volatile. This is generally, if you have a company like this, this is a commodity company because what it means is that you earn poor returns if the commodity is oversupplied. Like in 2012, you can see there's a 12% gross margin. And then great returns if the commodity is in shortage. 2018, you have a 59% gross margin. Um, and you can see just in the pattern on return on invested capital, that gross margin is the thing that's driving a lot of that. Uh, it's very cyclical. And in shortage years, you earn uh, extraordinary profits. But in most years, any years where you're not in shortage of commodity, you earn below the returns in the overall economy. And you can see that here. Most years for Micron, their return on invested capital has been well below that of the overall U.S. economy. In fact, it's a vast majority of years. But it is very high in those few years where you're in shortage. Um, you can see then that gross profit is more stable than operating profit, obviously. Uh, it's not that stable, but it's helpful to look over a long period of time at gross profit. Um, you could argue that if gross profit is high enough versus revenue, then there's a lot that you could fix uh, through operational improvements, right? So like the the examples that we give of that all that of that all the time or something like Village or um, Tandy or whatever, those are companies where it's the the company's operations are important because so as you can see what is theirs last year was five hundred sixty five million gross profit yeah and their their EV their market caps around three hundred million if we kind of average the two of them so around three hundred million so. That's cheap. That's what you see with retailers that uh, often. But you can see that their operating margin, for instance, was 4% back in 2012 when they actually had a slightly lower gross margin than, than they do today. So you can see gross margin is very, very stable. So what's the issue? The issue is SGNA. SGNA over time has gone up. SGNA, and this is a very, very small number here. SGNA of just 1% here would. Um, you know, SGNA of just 1% here would increase the company's uh, profits by, I don't know, four, uh, 60%, I think. So uh, a 1% improvement, it, you save one more cent uh, uh, per dollar of sales on SGNA, which is actually a 5% improvement in terms of you have to cut 5% of overhead. Um, but if you cut 5% of your SGNA costs or you saved one cent per dollar of sales you were making, uh, you you would increase your your after tax return your after tax earnings by something like sixty percent here, so that shows you how much power they have in that. Whereas when we talked about something like Verisign or some other companies people have asked me about, um, the truth is there's not it doesn't matter that much how careful they are about costs. Um, reducing their cost base gives very little increase in their earnings because their margins are so wide. But if your margins are very narrow, your operating margins are very narrow, uh, but you have a lot of gross profit then you have a lot that you can achieve versus SGNA. So it matters how efficiently you run. And that's the kind of thing that like an LBO would target.
but Celsius would not be a good choice because it's too expensive versus the things you would need to service debt and stuff like that. And Micron would not be a good choice because it's too volatile in terms of the actual gross profits. But here, if you believe that you could enforce the kind of discipline on the organization, um, if you believed in your organizational, your operational skills, um, then an operator would think that they could run something like this better. And that's all I'm really saying when I'm saying pick something with low, uh, or that's cheap versus gross profits. Um, it's kind of like saying pick, let's say you're buying a bank or something, pick a bank that's cheap versus like deposits and, you know, low cost deposits and things like that is cheap. It's the same concept. The truth is if the same management stays in place and they're not doing great things, uh, you won't get great results. But you would think that one bank would want to buy another bank if it had good deposits um, that were sticky and everything and it was trading below what it would take to ever possibly get those deposits out in the market, you know, that you could buy this thing for below book or whatever for that. A lot of times people use something like price to book. The problem with that is say, again, a bank or a supermarket or whatever, like say a supermarket, if the gross profitability is really poor or a bank, if the deposit costs are really high, then what's the point of the fact that it's below price to book of one? What does it matter to me? Whereas if the reverse is true, if the gross profitability is really high or the deposit costs are lower than my deposit costs at my bank, then price to book below one, then I want to merge with you. And that's what I mean by these is that if it's cheap versus gross profits, usually that's something you'd want to merge with or something you'd want to LBO, you know? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Okay, so we could go over and uh, answer some of the questions that listeners had emailed into me to be able to do that in the future. Uh, just email them to me at andreadfocuscompound.com and just put podcast in the subject. I will cue it and then we'll bring it up on the podcast. So somebody had sent in a question and he was curious about valuation outliers. He said retail is having a tough slog with inflation and an expectation for some depth of recession. Understandable, they've all gone knocked around. But Ollie's, which is a stock that we've talked a few times about on this podcast, has a valuation I just don't understand. Do either of the two of you have thoughts? Granted, no debt, but not a ton of cash on the balance sheet and trading at around 22 times 2024 earnings. Good God, who runs this? Elon's brother? I did laugh at that part. How do they get such a frothy valuation? Question mark. Earnings growth has been steady, but entering a potential economic rough patch, and they still have these kinds of multiples? Question mark. Is the idea this overstock seller might see margin revenue expansion in a recession? Question mark. Seems rich, but I'm no expert. What explains such disparity in valuations across companies in an industry? Question mark. Is this management really worth a growth multiple in what is typically a tough industry? Question mark. Has the overstock industry consolidated like the railroads and competition is agreeing not to kill each other? Loyal listener, you guys are terrific, generous, beautiful with your knowledge. He didn't say beautiful, but I just added that part. Anyways, I thought this was a great one to bring up for the podcast because we've spoken about Ollie's and actually I recently uh, was doing research on Ollie's and I think even I got like 26 times fiscal year 2022 earnings which I don't feel any right. sort of confidence on because it's complicated they opened up like what 40 or 50 stores last year and they're pulling back from their growth of COVID so it's just a very hard situation to underwrite but what are your thoughts on it so my thoughts with ollie's so the town i live in now there's an ollie's there's also dutch brothers um i've been to ollie's and dutch brothers now in a couple different places and uh 
I'm mentioning both of these because they're very high valuation stocks and they're sort of Peter Lynch type stocks in that they're in some places, but they would be able to move into a lot of other parts of the country. Ollie's isn't in a lot of the country, for instance. Um, They are interesting. I have to say, like, uh, if I didn't know the prices, uh, both with Ollie's and Dutch Brothers, I'd be really, really impressed with the business. The business model is really interesting. If someone's going to pitch me a business, those would be the kinds of things that I'd be interested in hearing about. Um, less so about, we mentioned like Chewy's or something like that. I enjoy going to a Chewy's, but uh, that that's a more competitive sort of thing that doesn't have a unique business model that could be exported to a lot of places and not copied. Um, obviously, some of it can be the evaluation in the moment like this is that some can be that you have people in consumer discretionary stuff, uh, hedge funds and things like that, that because these are generally, um, Ollie's is a pretty high turnover stock, I think. Um, may short companies that they think will do badly and go long companies they think will do well. So for instance, like I said, the FANG thing, one strategy that you might have if you're long short or doing things like that would be, okay, I'm going to go short meta and I'm going to go long interpublic right? I'm still exposed hundred percent to advertising either way, but I have a view on that. I'm going to go short, um, you know, whether it's Kohl's or it's uh, say Best Buy, Best Buy is very cheap, so they probably wouldn't do that, but I'm going to go long Ollie's and short something that is also pretty similar valuation or whatever, but is much more, um, I think has inventory, has bought the wrong kind of inventory, stuff like that. Um, obviously, if Target, Walmart, Amazon, all these companies have made big mistakes with inventory stuff and with overexpansion, that can benefit a company like Ollie's. Um, I think it has a simple business model that it explains well with a strong investor um, presentation sort of thing, investor relations. Um, and so it has a story, you know, it's a story stock that way. Um I was impressed by it when I, I, I've been to Ollie's a few times now and I'm impressed by it as a business. The unit economics are great. It's interesting the disparity and the difference in the business model between Ollie's and a company like Amazon. So here you have Amazon where it's the everything store. There's zero scarcity. You could get whatever you want by the click of a button, but then you transition to this Ollie's business model where it's all about scarcity, right? Where that scarcity keeps people coming back. And I think they actually have a sign in their store that says like, hey, once it's gone, it's gone. Uh, so there's that treasure hunt aspect to it, similar to like a Ross or a TJ Maxx or whatever. But uh, the unit economics are great. It does not have debt. That is correct. But they do have leases, of course. Um, I didn't consider that like debt in my enterprise value uh, calculation when I was underwriting it and, and, and researching it. But I did, of course, you know, obviously you could think of it as of a form of debt. But the business model itself was interesting. They're growing a lot. I mean, people could talk about, you know, well, is a, will the Ollie's customer get hit harder in like an economic recession or all these other things that could, you know, knock the stock down. So I think it's a good stock, a good stock to follow or a good business to follow, where if it ever got to a cheaper valuation, it would be um, one that you could, you know. Right. I would expect them to benefit from an economic recession relative to other, right? Be for a few reasons. One, you have to remember that companies um, don't have the same customers all the time that you know this is a problem for walmart and others the basket that they get and the customers that they get changes over time 
uh, this is true for inflation things is true for anything that we have to keep in mind that the actual activity that a customer is doing in the economy is changing where they're going is changing so places like dollar general and ollie's may see customers come to them who hadn't been coming to them before they trade down rather than trading up uh, so that's one thing that can happen the other thing that can happen is obviously the inventory that we talked about mistakes that you've seen with a lot of companies um, to get rid of that would have to be to sell that to someone who can then liquidate it. Um, and, and obviously the problem that like an Amazon has is Amazon doesn't have a way to get rid of its inventory. And Ollie's is that way to get rid of inventory for, you know, um, so that's a problem. I mean, the more, the more things that go online, the more this is a problem. This is the big problem of online is it is very, very expensive to deal with returned merchandise they have very high merchandise returns usually and they don't know what to do with it and it's very costly in their systems logistically and all that and, and it's what makes online difficult to be economic um, if you have a high value to weight uh, ratio um, highly commoditized standardized product that you're selling uh, that people can verify ahead of time and that is um doesn't have a ton of SKUs, uh that's a good business so you know your 1-800 pet meds and your and 1-800 contacts and all that and your blue nile and those businesses make a lot of sense online some other businesses don't make as much sense and they have very high returns and that really affects the economics of them um and ollie's is interesting compared to some other uh, liquidation type retail things in that it has a very big mix of where it gets uh, of um what categories it sells so it isn't all in one sort of um in one sort of category uh so that part of it is very interesting you can see the gross margin stability is pretty high that may be a result of pricing strategy though you know sort of like a costco yeah yeah it's impressive um they're the things I liked about it, things I don't. Uh, things I liked about it is that historically, I think a lot of their employees ha that were key to doing different things have been with the company a long time. There might be less of that very recently. Um, I don't like sort of how promotional or whatever it is in terms of uh, the price that we're seeing, but also just how much communication there is with investors, how well it's the stock is known. If we go to the business description here, we could get some ideas. Yeah, so share turnover is 680%. So that's part of the problem that I have. Um, they're only 29 states and they're in lots of, there's lots of places that they are not um, in, that they could be in certainly, yeah. Um, and they can certainly go into, it's very easy for them to get locations, you know. Um, they basically take over locations that are, were uh, in a strip mall that are vacant, you know, that was used by someone else. So I've actually been to a couple of these and, there's not a great de de uh, degree of consistency there because they don't seem to invest in um, like PPNE in converting from the previous tenant. So, for instance, I can tell who the previous tenant was sometimes because they haven't changed stuff about it. So, like, I know that this was a hard discount grocery store or something because it looks like it's still, whereas the other one doesn't, you know. Um, so, and obviously, there's lots of commercial vacancies and strip malls and stuff where Ollie's would want to go. So... Uh, you know, it's not that I would buy the stock or whatever, but I could see definitely why it would have a much higher valuation than, than certain other retail things. Sure. I mean, you're not, look, you're, let's put it this way. You're not competing with it. 
you're as far from competing with online as possible. To some extent, you may be benefiting from online existing as a business, but also you're not competing with online in terms of who your customers are. The Ollie's customer is the opposite of the Amazon Prime customer or something. One issue with like Costco, while they're very offline and everything, is probably the Costco customer and the online and the Amazon customer are similar. They're probably the same sort of people who are Amazon Prime people and who are Costco members. Uh, you're not that with Ollie's. You're not that with Dollar General. Um, for the most part, you're not that with Tractor Supply. You know, so I think valuation we could see is uh, um, well. Let's look. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's high. You know, I don't know if it's double or something what you would probably want to pay. Uh, it's probably double what you would want to pay. Yeah. Yeah, you'd probably $30 a share or something is more of what you'd want to pay. And I'm not saying that's a sure thing when it's at that level. Uh, the other thing is you can see no matter even how good it is, the return on equity is, eh, it's okay. But you're paying three times book or something for something that has not had a return on equity in the double digits until the last few years. And then in those few years is really returned, say, 15% a year. That's what makes retail a really tough business. Um. I just want to, you know, I'm just willing to not even be in retail at all. But I'm saying maybe if I had to be in retail, is it the kind of thing I would look at? Yeah. I don't pay 30 times earnings for anything or 20 times EBITDA probably for much of anything. Um, but it's certainly a business model I would try to learn about. Yeah. Um, you did see bad results in the last year. Like you even saw gross profits decline. For a retailer to have gross profits in absolute terms decline is uh, very unusual. You know, it depends on the retailer, but there are many retailers who probably never had a gross profits decline for a long period in their history. So that's a very big concern. Yeah. And they're also getting smoked, like I said, on the negative side of operating leverage as well. You know, you expanded through COVID and then sales pulled back and then that, you know, smacks your profit in a pretty big way. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I can certainly see that. I, I mean, I don't care about that individually in the sense that like, um, if you're, Margin's going to contract because of uh, declining sales that are going to happen one time or during a recession or something. I don't care as long as it's going to recover later. Um, I don't think people think it's going to decline. You know, like so that argument. Yeah. So then you don't own the stock for a year or something. But if you notice what would happen then is that your profits in a recovery would grow faster than your sales. So if your normal sales growth is 10 or 15% a year, I mean, for instance, this company was growing, let's see, uh, it was growing more than 15% a year pretty consistently for five years before that. Obviously, if your margin is expected to double, uh, not double maybe, I, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't think it would. I think it's pretty close. So I don't know that there's a lot of operating leverage in this right now. Uh, it could grow a little bit though. So maybe your your earnings per share would grow more than twenty percent. You know, it could be twenty twenty five percent if your if your sales were to grow fifteen percent. Um, you know, it's just it's interesting for me looking at it as a, you know, uh, Ollie's and and Dutch Brothers, which I mentioned, are both interesting in that they're such specific uh, things that they're offering customers that are different from everybody else. Um, that I do find them interesting as businesses compared to some of the stuff that we talk about uh, just because they're offering something so clearly mm -hmm. of interest. Also with Ollie's, you know, most investors in general, investors won't see a lot of locations that they're at and investors are unlikely to be the people shopping at Ollie's or to understand why people would shop at Ollie's. So, you know, the people who are going to shop at Ollie's are going to be people who have a lot of time and very little money. Investors tend to be people who don't have a lot of uh, time 
and who have a lot of money. And so they do uh, sometimes underestimate things like that. And there are business models in which what you're doing mainly is giving up your time. I mean, most investors don't understand the games workshop because the part that gets them is the, the time commitment to be that fanatical about something that way. Uh, for the actual people doing it, it's the dollar commitment, not the time commitment that they talk about, right? But so I, I think Ollie's is one of those things that can be misunderstood. We talked about that a little bit with like tractor supply, for instance. I think for a long time, that was a, a hundred bagger. And I think for a long time, it had a really interesting business model. And yet people didn't, um, it, you, it would be good to recognize it early on because you could have seen that. And it's one of those where you could kind of guess from the the business model, how it was going. Um, I think there's just not a lot of companies of any kind growing as fast as Ollie's was before. And so that's part of the reason why it has such a high price. It, there used to be a lot of things where people like these really fast growth stocks, right? And that was why I also mentioned um, Dutch Brothers because the same thing. It's a story that's like a fast growing thing that people can understand. I would have generally avoid things this expensive and things that have the share turnover that high. Great. So next question, I was watching your old videos and on this one, what's my upside? How to break down where your return can come from? On minute 517, what would you do differently if the company had to reinvest into the business to grow? I'm trying to put in my head how you value the business by all the YouTube videos, but I'm not 100% figuring it out. Do you recommend any other content about this way of valuing a company? I'm reading on average three to five 10Ks a week. No, I do not. Um, I don't know how to explain it. Here, here's the issue. This is a problem. I try to explain this all the time, and I get this is by far like the most common kind of questions I get are this in some form of DCF, in some form of if it grows versus other ways of valuing it. Um, and the the problem is, so wh what I've said before, which is what I do, which is absolutely true, is I figure out how much I think the company is going to grow. And then I figure out how much they're going to reinvest the capital. I never myself use return on equity. Don't do it. So, which is the opposite of what everyone else does. But the reason for that is that I think there's a constraint to how much you grow pretty much regardless of uh, how much capital you have. And that's really the question. And then on top of that, if you grow, then there's the question of how much capital it will take to, to have that growth. But you, um, so as a result, what I'm trying to do is let's take a company which has an incremental return on equity, on invested capital. Um, that's basically infinite. The problem with all these questions are the difference between incremental returns on capital and average returns. Everyone when talking to me talks to me about the average returns where the incremental returns may be quite different. So for instance, a lot of companies seem to have very different average returns on capital, especially if we look at 10 year averages. So you'd say, Oh, you know, Walmart has this wide moat versus this company or something, but it's unlikely because the incremental returns on capital of the two are more similar and it's the incremental returns on capital uh, that you'd expect competition to equalize, right? Not so returns on capital as of this moment, uh, not returns on capital as of um, the average past. So most great businesses that you see, many of them, uh, they are simply maintaining uh, high returns because they had high return projects in the past, not because they necessarily have high return projects now. Um, this gets to things about so this gets to the issue of like 
why why I would worry about it is most people when talking about what they think in a DCF or something about what the future returns are going to be, are going to be picking an incremental return on capital, you know, a marginal return. And that number is going to be a lot higher. Uh, and that's the theoretically correct way of doing it. It is not the average return. It's just the incremental return. And so when you talk about what if the company had to do to reinvest in the business to grow, all you have to do is figure out what would be the incremental return on capital of that project and it's worth that much the problem is that it's basically a number we can't measure um this is what i talked about with alibaba alibaba probably has incredibly low incremental returns on capital i don't know if it'll ever turn around but for years it hasn't been good their average returns look good and still are good uh because their early day returns were so high but if they continue to invest at levels that they have recently in terms of how much additional capital there is versus how much additional profit there is, uh, they're not creating value. And so then it's a debate with all of these. It's a debate with Micron or with this. You know, So Micron, for instance, probably there are years where it, there's a shortage. They have a infinite incremental returns on capital, it seems like. Their average return might not be that impressive. It might get them to a 25% return on equity, but they went there from a zero. How did it happen? It happened because prices went up because there was a shortage of supply in the industry, not really because they just spent it on a project this year that drove this return. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's a, a great, your answer is great to it because, I mean, we even got another question where somebody was talking about your article on over-the-counter markets, and he says, he doesn't understand when you wrote, in reality, if OTCM is priced at a PE of 25, that's really like having a free cash flow yield of 5% because price to free cash flow is likely 20 instead of 25. That means if my hurdle rate is 10% total, I really only need OTCM to grow by 5% a year while I own it. 10% minus 5% free cash flow yield equals 5% required growth. So starting at a P of 25, OTCM will probably beat the market over time if it grows faster than 5% a year. Based on this, my question is, when he says that it only needs to grow by 5% a year while you own it, that's to achieve a 10% CAGR during the period, question mark. Because if the free cash flow yield grows by 5% every year for 10 years, I think that the CAGR wouldn't be of 10% a year. Yeah, so this is a similar one, same issue. This, this gets into math things that are com complicated that we have to simplify in our heads all the time when doing this, and everyone's doing them. Whether they're, you're reading a paper on economic topics or you're reading about the returns in the stock market or whatever. Here, the issue is, yes, there's reinvestment risk, and we've talked about this. Um, so when I do this, a calculation of a company and what its value would be, it does have to assume that you could find a return that's the same as what you already own at any point in time. Of course, this is very unrealistic, and it's actually a very big problem in real life in the stock market. If you take the dividends that you're getting and you try to reinvest them or you take any sales you make and try to reinvest them, it may become more and more difficult. In fact, if you think about it logically, let's say that you tend to sell things that go up and that went up because they performed well. Okay, all right. So like they're multiple expanded and you sell them like you're a value investor, right? You then face this problem that if you're doing that, of course you can't reinvest in the same business that you already have. It went up and your reinvestment... Uh, Opportunities are always worse. So actually, your ability to find opportunities to invest in versus your actual returns that you'll get, your actual returns that you'll get will be worse. In theory, then you should always be underperforming your ability to identify good businesses 
if as a value investor, as you own them and more money comes in from your job or whatever that you're saving money from, um, the, the, re the return opportunity would actually go down because your stocks are going up presumably faster than say the market or faster than their earnings. Their, their multiples are expanding because you bought cheap stocks. Uh, so that's the problem that you have. And I have mentioned this a little bit with things like stock buybacks. I've said that's the advantage of the stock buyback uh, of a cheap stock is if you know a stock's going to buy back a lot of stock, and I'll do this, I think that the reinvestment situation is really strong because if you think about it logically, if the stock goes down or stays the same, it will produce a lot of free cash flow, which will use to buy back the stock. So that's what's called like a payment in kind. I will get more, I don't actually get more shares, but there's fewer shares outstanding. So it's the same effect as if the company issued me shares. So I'm just getting paid a dividend in shares of the company, basically. It would be like having a bond that gives me more bonds instead of a bond that gives me, uh, that then promised me uh, dollars instead of paying me in dollars. If the coupon is high enough, then I'd rather a bond that pays me more bonds in theory. Um, so that's why I would say something like an Omnicommerce thing you buy there. Uh, if it says I'm going to buy back a lot of stock and it's cheap because then if it goes up, you sell it when the return, the future return on it gets poorer and then you can turn around and you can buy something else. So the reinvestment risk um, is solved in that way for you because you don't run into the problem that in theory you'd have. And this is where I get into why buybacks are always good, but why buybacks are always good for the investor is that if you think about it, yes, lots of companies make buybacks that cost them that are poor uses of capital, but they're poor uses of capital because the company stock is unattractive. So if the company stock is unattractive because the price is too high to do a good buyback, you sell the stock. You know, if you don't agree with a buyback, you should sell the stock. If you do agree with a buyback, you'd want to buy the stock anyway. So it's always good to, you always want your stocks to be buying back stock pretty much um, with the exception of like financial uh, of credit risk, but putting aside credit risk, you'd always want them to be buying back stock. If you're against a stock buyback, you should generally sell the stock. So like for you, the reinvestment risk, that works out well for you. This is not just an issue in stocks. This is a huge issue in bonds. Uh, when people talk about bonds, they without thinking about it, they talk about them as if they're zero coupon bonds when they're not. Um, it's a huge issue when we talk about different bond portfolio things that I think people don't understand unless you are, um, unless rates aren't really moving around a lot and you're laddering. Uh, the, the things that people are talking about in terms of what returns they think they're going to get are very different on a compound basis over time than uh, what they would be uh, if they were, say, buying a, like a zero coupon bond. They're think that they think they're locking a return over the entire life of it because there's a significant amount. Usually in recent years, there hasn't been because the, the um, yields have been so low. But usually the sum total of the yields that you're going to have to reinvest, that you, the coupons that you get, um, are pretty significant because it's a short duration thing. Um, and so you're going to have a very large amount of reinvestment risk over time. And so, yeah, I don't know how to predict that though. I don't know how to predict what the stock will be at. What I would say with something like uh, OTCM or something is, is that the return you're going to get, well, if the stock price doubles, so the return's not so good, sell the stock and move on to something else. I mean, it's the same logic with the bonds that way. Uh, don't keep doing the same thing. It's moved, so don't do that. That's always my problem, too, with when people talk about the stock market returns. Well, the stock market's averaged, you know, let's say 10% a year over the last 100 years or whatever. And uh, so I expect it will average the same thing in the future. It, if it's more expensive now than in the past, it, it won't. 
And part of the reason why it's average return it has is because it was cheaper in the past. You know, that's part of the return you got. It depends on your price, your starting price. And so uh, it's a huge issue. And both of these are the same concept, same philosophical concept, mathematical concept that, that I'm having trouble explaining, which is a large part of your future returns in a stock and for a company, the value that it has, is going to depend on how you use the cash flows that you get in future periods and then reinvest them. And that's the issue we have in both of these. It's the reinvestment concept. And it's a marginal idea. It's going to be that if you if you have something that yields 10%, let's say, you're going to pay a dollar today, you're going to get 10 cents back tomorrow, uh, and you're going to have to use that 10 cents to then buy something else. If you buy more of the exact same thing at the exact same price, it's pretty easy to do the math. But generally, you won't. I mean, you always won't. And so even if you put it back into the same stock, it'll be at a higher or lower price. The same thing for all these projects that companies look at. Yeah, and I think the issue is that people are trying to make a certainty out of something that, quite frankly, isn't certain, right? The future. Uh, but it reminds me of this quote from Munger when he was talking about Costco. And he says, I can't give you a formulaic approach because I don't use one. And I just mix all the factors. And if the gap between value and price is not attractive, I go on to something else. And sometimes it's just quantitative. For instance, when Costco was selling for 12 or 13 times earnings, I thought that was a ridiculously low value just because the competitive strength of the business was so great and it was so likely to keep doing better and better. But I can't reduce that to a formula for you. I liked the cheap real estate. I liked the competitive position. I liked the personnel system. I liked everything about it. And I thought even though it's three times book or whatever it was then, that it's worth more. But that's not a formula. If you want a formula, you should go back to graduate school. They'll give you lots of formulas that won't work. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, we could certainly come up with formulas. It's sort of like when we talk about the uh, Fed stuff, uh, you know, recent books that I read and I talked about. And one of the things they talk about is like R star, this thing that they have. Um, theoretically, if you go back into the past and use this, You'd say, this is perfect. This is the theoretically correct thing that you should have. The problem is at no point do I feel you can measure it in time to make a decision about it. So it's like this quarter, what is it? I don't know. And you can't know with enough certainty to make any decisions to base on it. It is though sort of like when we talk about equity risk premium or something like that. Like it's a number that you can come up with after the fact and say, oh yes, this is what it is. And theoretically, this is what it should be. But it's not a number that we can measure. Whereas gross profits, we can measure. Is it the best thing to measure? You know, what's the market cap relative to the gross profits or something like that? I don't know. It's a number that we have. And within certain ranges of confidence, if it's a, it seems extremely low or extremely high, it's a number that can be useful to us. Um, at the extremes, it's easier to do this. So it's easier to know, for instance, that the company is using no capital or that the company is using too much capital. The ones that are tricky are the in-between ones and this is where we kind of have to have arguments about it and stuff um uh sometimes there are situations where i think that the return on capital the incremental return might be quite high and um and so the fact that the return that the average return right now is not that good doesn't matter as much uh, this in a qualitative sense is present in all the decisions that I'm making and when I'm talking about things and it, it might not be as obvious, but when, I'm, when we're talking about things that are close to price to book, for instance, Virtu Motors, NACO, if you listen 
to what I'm saying exactly on the on the capital allocation stuff. It actually is close to what we're talking about here, which is that there is an assumption that the uses of capital will not be too far from getting them one dollar of market value for one dollar reinvested in the business. Uh, if they diverge somewhat from the plans that I thought they might have, then that changes. So if I didn't think they were going to invest in those industries, or if I thought that um, they were going to invest in stuff that uh, at, at very different prices, then we might have a problem. So in the past, Virtue did that. They they did it through issuing stock of their own below book and buying stuff above book. If you do that, you can easily, even though the industry is fine, um, end up with returns that are worth that that dollar of capital doesn't get you an adequate return to justify a dollar increase in market value. Um, with NACA, we talked about if they bought things to operate um, as coal mines uh, that they would own, for instance. And we said that like if that if they were doing that, then it would be a lot more likely that I would sell the stock or something. But with the things that they were planning to do and investing in, I didn't really have a problem with. In both those cases, the assumption is not very specific, but it is that the returns on capital will neither be incredibly high nor incredibly low. Um, and then if you want to take other extreme ones, you know, you have the Celsius and stuff. We, you know, we don't know. It's really, really hard to figure out because they're growing really fast and everything. However, on a, a gap basis, certainly, and, and actually cash flow basis too, they've never generated earnings on the, on what they've done really. They never consistently generate earnings. So that gets into the net present value kind of calculations that you would have of an Uber or whatever. That's the kind of thing that you're dealing with with Celsius. You have something where you think I see a business model that will make a bunch of money in future years and it's not now. Uh, Amazon went for over 10 years or something like that and then became successful. So it's happened, but they're hard calculations to do. I think people forget about base rates though, right? On how just one-off these situations are. I mean, you even were talking about with Celsius how... You don't want people to get, um, you know, the impression that that's the standard. Yeah. Uh, so the the issue there is, of course, that we did the hundred bagger stuff. Almost all hundred baggers, you'd have lots of opportunities to buy them when they had positive earnings. It's been very rare to have to buy hundred baggers. Maybe there's some biotech companies or something that they were losing money um, and had really high P ratios. You know, usually they're making some money. Their P ratio might have been 60 instead of 16 or something. But even then, um, they were real businesses with real earnings and somewhat normal looking P ratios like companies really have, though not value stocks. Um, and that's what the vast majority, as you said, of 100 baggers come from. They don't come from things like what Celsius looked like. Yeah. And if I could just before moving on to the next topic about this, to everybody listening, I mean, I promise you when we talk about a stock, I mean, the valuation topic is all of, I don't know, five or 10 minutes. I mean, it, it, the rest of the energy is always focused on, you know, the product economics or the industry or the competitive position or the business itself. I mean, and then you could be like, yeah, I could see how it seems, you know, cheap today. And you could underwrite it maybe even a different, a few different ways. And you're like, it's, it's cheap. I mean, most of our energy is all, I mean, most, if not all, it's on the actual business itself. Yeah, I always say I don't need to know what it's worth. I just need to know that it's uh, will give a good enough return. And the other thing is, for us, we are not analysts. We are investors. So it is not a requirement that we be able to value Celsius. 
or to value Micron or to value Tandir Village if we don't want to. All we need to do is to have enough confidence that something is worth. We also don't really short stocks. So the other thing is to have enough confidence that something is worth a lot more than what it seems to be. So it's the Charlie Munger quote. That's what really matters to us. Uh, the, the DCF kind of stuff is necessary to put everything on the same footing to have an overall general theory that works for everything. That's absolutely true. Uh, you would have to come up with something that could allow for a company to lose money for 10 years in a row, for a company to have be cheap and then turn around and, and go from good to great and whatever. You'd, that's like only a discounted cash flow statement can compare all assets. But for the most part, although theoretically correct, you're not going to find a lot of situations, I'm not going to find a lot of situations at least, where I can have much confidence that I ha that using timely information that I have with estimates of the future, I'm going to be able to accurately uh, value it. What I can do is come up with a projection that makes internal sense. So I can say Ollie's is going to grow 15% a year for the next 15 years and put that in my model. I have no idea if that if I should be confident in that or not. It, it will work in the model and tell me what the right price is. But, you know... Um, because you have to put something in there. So you will put, you know, you'll, you'll come up with something you put in, but you could be way off on that, obviously. Got it. So let's talk about real business stuff. Uh, and the question is, um, what are the factors we should be thinking about when assessing the bargaining power of a given business relative to its customers and suppliers? So a few podcasts ago, we spoke about Moat. Uh, in the last podcast, we started to talk a little bit more about bargaining power. And it's an interesting topic. And Jeff has spoken a lot about market power and how that is his number one mental model, if you will, uh, which is the ability of a company to make demands on its customers or suppliers without fearing that such demands will end their relationship. Why would a supplier or a customer agree to these type of demands uh, without considering ending their relationship with said company? And it's this idea of dependency. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. You've written a lot about this topic. We've talked a lot about, about this topic, but dependency, right? So especially in modern times when we're talking about pricing power and raising prices to keep up with inflation, what does dependency mean to you and why do you think it's important for a company? So dependency is, well, one thing is just going to be that the way that things are organized now, a company is dependent on another company or a person is dependent on something. Um, obviously, there's going to be a... Uh, you're not really dependent in most of these situations if you carry out a big plan to get off of that dependency. But the idea is in this moment, this is a habit that has become entrenched that's going to be difficult to change without changing a bunch of other things at the same time. Um, so that's usually what it's going to be. There's very, very rare cases in which you're really dependent in that if you made the effort to plan to have a complete switch over from one thing to another, you couldn't do it. Uh, it's just that there's, it's very hard to make, an, like we're saying, incremental stuff. It's very hard to make incremental little changes to test out differences uh, of how you could get off of this dependency. I think that's usually the most common one um, because people are always interested in the ones like, you know, um, where there's a theoretically like you're really dependent on just one source or something, but that's not usually the case. What it more is is the things we've talked about where you're used to using um, one system, let's say in your company or something, everyone's using windows. You're pretty dependent on it, even though yes, if 
Um, if you decided to carry out a plan in which you switch your entire company over from one thing to another, it could be done. It's, it's not a big deal. But uh, in any one moment, no one inside the organization can make a decision to make a small change that way. And here are some ways that you could sort of test for these things, I guess, that would be more so in uh, a 10K. And it's just to ask, you know, whether a supplier gets a large portion of its sales from a single customer. Um, and, you know, for anyone that, that has read 10K knows, you know, generally if a customer is more than 10% of its sales, that's something that would be in the 10K and is a good first check. A uh, second question to ask is whether this percentage is bigger than the supplier's competitor sales to the same company. We talked a little bit about this on the last podcast, uh, which is a good example of Hanes gets 20% of its total sales from Walmart. Uh, does Fruit of the Loom get 10 or 20 or 30% of its sales uh, from Walmart? And if the answer is the same, or uh, that they get the same amount of sales, uh, this lowers the concern of insufficient bargaining power, which is really what we want to guard against, right? Mm -hmm. That's the big red flag. Uh, if the answer is that the supplier you're looking at gets more of its sales from a single customer than competitors usually do, that's a big red flag. Yeah, I think that's true. Yep. What are some other things that you typically look for when trying to assess if a company has insufficient uh, bargaining power? I mean, we use the example of BWX and uh, the Navy mm -hmm. and who has the bargaining power there. What are some other things that you typically try to watch out for? Um, for me, I think that the biggest one usually is if uh, it, if things are very comparable. So substitutes are usually the big one. So if it's very comparable and very available, those are the two. So for instance, uh, let's say we're buying from something mostly because of price. We think we're getting the best price on something we're sourcing. Um, if we have that and we also have a bunch of other sources that have already been approved that we could buy from, uh, then I think that you have a you you may have not very good bargaining power with that customer. Um, if there's a lot of other factors besides price, or it doesn't have to be price, it could be any you know one metric that we could all compare. If it's harder to compare one to another, then usually you're going to have a more entrenched relationship there. And um, the longer it takes to kind of search for things, the better, uh, especially the longer it takes to kind of get comfortable with making a switch. Um, that your worst would be if it's easy to switch from one to the other in the sense that you, um, I mean, the, the, if you're buying 100% from one thing instead of another, usually that puts you in a dangerous position in terms of dependency because unless you're actually buying some from somewhere else, getting some use from somewhere else, uh, it's not realistic in many cases that you're really going to make the switch. So let's say, you know, ad agency, law firm, whatever, unless you're using some of the services of someone else for a portion of your needs, it's not very realistic that you're going to switch. Um, so consolidating is, in fact, how they get you to be very dependent on them is to consolidate the account by reducing the number of um, service providers that you have down to one or something. Whereas if you're using someone else um, already, then that's that trial thing is usually your most realistic way of, of changing. So like in the example of Celsius and their partnership with Pepsi, I mean, who has the bargaining power there? I mean, they get this distribution advantage from Pepsi, or is it more so they're on the same side because now Pepsi has an equity stake in <laughs> Celsius? That's a great question. Uh, I would tend to think, I, if I was on Pepsi's board, I'd be careful. I think you got a small stake that may not give you a ton of control um you seem to be the more desperate party 
Um, you seem to have a lot more money to blow on it. It's easier for you to kind of hide if it doesn't go well. There's a lot of things about it that it's dangerous to do from Pepsi's perspective, I would say. Um, so in a negotiation like that, I think it tends to favor the Celsius uh, party than the, than the Pepsi one, the, the seller than the buyer, yeah. When you're looking at like companies like restaurants, I mean, what are things that you typically test to judge bargaining power? So restaurants is a really good example because I think that bargaining power issue of the trialing other things is the really, really big problem in that industry. The problem that they have is that everyone tries um, for variety and that that variety means that the frequency can decrease. Um, the easiest thing usually, there, there's a few different things, but one of the easiest ways in marketing stuff is to either increase competitively is to either increase or decrease the frequency of purchase of other things. So it's much easier to advertise. Um, it's much easier, easier to advertise a toothpaste where so, someone has already used that toothpaste and to get them to use it more frequently, that is to buy just yours and not other brands. So the ad isn't really about try our toothpaste for the first time. That could be what it's about, but that's actually very hard and expensive way of doing it. Um, increasing the frequency is a better way of doing it. So it's really hard to run ads for Coca-Cola, nearly impossible, that would convince someone to try Coca-Cola for the first time. However, the advertising could help to make sure that you always reach for Coca-Cola when you go to uh, the supermarket or uh, you order at a restaurant. I think it's a really, really hard problem for most restaurants. And I think it's a really big advantage generally for certain quick service things that I think are better businesses, primarily um, your Domino's and your Starbucks and some things like that. I think breakfast, coffee, pizza, things that are done in apps and stuff help that and start to shift that a little bit away to be better businesses than some of the others. A full service dinner place is going to have really big problems that way because you can't stop them from trialing the competition. And I don't think people realize how hard that would be. If there was a legal requirement that everyone have a, um, Android phone on them at all times, uh, as well as an iPhone, you know, uh, I, I don't think people realize how much that would really hurt Apple over time. Uh, a really big part of the advantage is not that people are actually trying two things out against each other. Um, you know, Google wouldn't be as good a business if you were required by law that your every fifth search had to be with Bing. Um, it would shift some people over over time and just not reinforce as much. The fact that you never try the other service is such a big part of it. And that restaurants are one of the few industries where it's nearly impossible. Like no matter how much, how loyal you are to one restaurant, you'll try others. And so eventually your frequency will decrease to that. Uh, your frequency of visits will decrease and you'll, because someone else can get in there if they have a better product, you know, if they build a better mousetrap. It's one of the few industries where you're just building a better mousetrap in the local area where you are or whatever will really win you over as a customer. How do you think about the relationship of scale and size and market power. So for example, like does Ollie's have market power with their suppliers yeah. because they're a bigger buyer than other companies would be or other mom and pop companies? I mean, so how right. do you typically think about like scale and size and how that relates to the market power you could have over your suppliers? Yeah, so Ollie's is a really good example because the thing there is there's a lot of market power potentially. It, it, we talked about this a little bit before. Um, one problem you have is where you would disrupt the market. You're too big. And that's the problem that some people liquidating through uh, have. They 
it's also the problem that we've talked about like that's one of the reasons why like ball and companies like that have advantages with coke and with cores and with whoever because they're such big customers that you've gotten to be an inappropriate size versus your market that you're in when you are a retailer um like a amazon or whatever you've gotten to such a big size that it's hard for you to get rid of a product um and so you need it, part partnerships that match up more with your size and can take all of it are going to be a big advantage. Um, we always talk about it as if these like buying in bigger size matters a lot it, or selling in bigger size. It depends. Um, in some cases it's crucial and in others it's not. So in some you need to be uh, big enough to be able to uh, fulfill the requirements of a customer. So a customer who's really, really big, it's going to matter. Or a supplier is really, really big. It's going to matter in your relationship with them, like we just talked about. If you want to liquidate something, you don't want to liquidate a small portion of it with 10 different parties. You would like to get move all of it, you know? Um, and so you that's going to be a really big advantage. The same thing with um, private label things. You'd have to be big enough to be able to service um, companies that want private label. So there's going to be big scale advantages there. But in other cases, it's it's not going to matter a great deal. I mean, if Coke wants to buy a huge amount of sugar, and if someone down the street who's just starting up something wants to buy sugar, uh, they're not going to get dramatically different prices. How do you typically think of like private label? So there's a lot of companies that we come across, and Ollie's, for example, they have their own private label as well. Yeah. Um, uh, private labels interesting um it, i think it reflects mainly bargaining power of the retailer over the customer um and their ability to block out the customer from interacting much with the uh, brands so it happens in societies in which the relationship between customer and retailer is stronger than the relationship with the brand and the customer and i think in part reflects a weakness on the part of brands to connect with their customers when that happens um Mostly when I look around the world, I don't see a trend of any demand for the customer that they're pushing for this. It's pushed on them by the retailer, and it's a way for the retailer to strengthen their relationships and uh, at the expense of the brands. And in some of it is the brands not having as good a uh, – is greater loyalty to the retailer than to the brand is what's happening in those situations. Um and then that's may also be other factors. Uh, fragmentation that can happen in society can contribute to that. So it may seem to you, if you shop at certain places, that um, you know that there's a lot of loyalty to that and whatever. But you have to remember that large segments for all retailers, most of the country does not shop there. Um, so th in some cases, there are brands with more overall appeal that can reach um a greater group but having a lot of appeal across a broad group of customers isn't necessarily as helpful as having uh, more appeal with a smaller group that's where we talk about the com comparison between niches and, and other things like that so like costco has a lot of bargaining power however costco is fairly limited and then it's a very small part of the overall u.s market and not only a small part but because it accounts for such a large part for those people who do use it Remember that the vast, vast, vast majority of people are not interacting with Costco at all, don't know what's there, don't, you know, um, which is different than some brands that have very big reach, but ne don't aren't necessarily psychologically all that important to their uh, um, customers and all that. So that's where we talk about things like um, 
Heinz ketchup or whatever. But Heinz ketchup is something that in the poorest household in the United States, most rural household and the richest, most um, uh, urban households and stuff is present in both. Whereas something like Costco doesn't bridge that gap. Right. But the bargaining power is usually not based on how big your reach is across things. It's usually based on the uh, how deep it is. So we talk about it with the local advantages and all that big giant national scale to reach. Everyone is not usually um, a key uh, issue in stuff like bargaining power, although it, it can help with economies of scale with your costs and stuff like that, that we've talked about, but it's usually not going to get you like great pricing power or something like that. How do you typically think about like niches and bargaining power? Well, I th- there, there's good and bad parts of it. Um, obviously the big advantage of a niche is that it discourages um, rivalry because it keeps people out just because the, the the best way to keep competitors out is usually to have a seemingly unattractive position. Now you might have a strong position, but whatever position they enter the industry in is going to be not good. The easiest way to attract them, unfortunately, is, you know, to have um, a, a something that looks like it'll be a good position from the beginning. So that, that is something that looks promising. Uh, so a really small market would tend to mean that you have um, that that there's enough profit for you, but not for others to come in there. So let's take the example of Tandy. So Tandy started out leather stuff, hobby things, expanded into electronic hobby things. That became a huge retailer called Radio Shack that you know failed, went out of business, and Tandy in a different form still exists to this day. Um, why does that still exist in leather and the electronics one not? it got too big and didn't stay as a niche that way. That's both the promise and the risk of it is that being in a niche is the kind of thing that doesn't offer a lot of opportunities for you to grow and to become one of these hundred baggers. It also is that companies that get into really big markets. I mean, that's the easiest way to go out of business is to be in a really big market to be a, you know, um, they're more dangerous because of like, uh, if the customers go away, you're in such a niche position that your business is done. Well, because they attract rivalry, um, so they they attract competition. Like, um, you know, using the supermarkets example or whatever. If you're if you are um, ketchup, if you are cream cheese, you know, you're not going to see a lot of competition in those. If you're energy drinks, you are going to see a lot of competition. So the same energy drinks that, I mean, I don't know if the same energy drinks today that are popular today will be popular in 20 years 50 years 100 years whatever uh it's more likely the same ketchup and same cream cheese will be and that's been the case before why do you think that is uh because they stop a customer standpoint they stop growing you know they stop growing i mean growth is kind of the danger growth in number of customers is usually the big danger in an industry that's the big risk you're gonna i mean that's why they're like thousands of car companies and then they all collapsed you, you know that buffett talks about because the actual number of people buying cars was growing so fast. If an industry grows through other ways, it, it might be attractive, but it uh, might be defensible. But it's hard if an industry grows the number of customers really fast because there's no loyalty there. You know, um, When we talk about grocery things and stuff, one of the reasons why it's uh, fairly stable is because there, there's no growth in the number of customers. Now, the growth in the number of customers is the growth in the population in the country. If you had a situation where everyone was in rural places and then and the supermarkets were all in urban places and everyone was moving from one to the other at a really high rate every year in some country, um, then suddenly that would be a really risky thing. It's not that there's anything inherent in supermarkets or something that make them have high change or low change. It's just that they've been well established for 100 years. You know, We talked about movie things. 
uh, biggest uh, producer movies, exporter movies, and everything is the United States and has been for a, you know, it's about a hundred. Um, what is it now? I don't know. All, 115 years, something like that. I mean, it would have been every single year since then. It's harder in a lot of places once one country passes another to maintain that same advantage for all of those periods, and that's because there's there's just more change in place. Um, and that's one of the biggest risks with any business that we're looking at is that the, the number of customers increasing because when the number of customers are increasing, that's going to increase the number of substitutes a lot. Um, I think a lot of people are, we talked about windows, for instance, I think a lot of people are attracted to that in the early days when you know, computers are going to grow a lot and everything, but there's actually still plenty of risks at that point. There's a certain point where there's a lot less risks. Um, and it's similar to when we talked about BlackBerry versus Apple and all that at the point at which the smartphone business is growing the fastest that it is, it's pretty risky. There's lots of new customers. They could adopt different things. A few years after that, a couple of generations later, it might not be that risky. Um, and it's hard to, to gauge that. Like, I don't think that video game consoles are as risky today as they were at the beginning, but you shouldn't assume that the industry was as not risky at the beginning as it is now because people would switch over from those. So both of those are, are wrong to kind of think of it that way. It doesn't become as entrenched. Um, so yeah, the the biggest risk is always lots of new customers. Um, those are the industries that are the riskiest. Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about dependency with your customers as well. So I mean, like, how do you typically think about that? Is it like the Heinz ketchup example, where you know, even in the poorest households or the richest households, if you have ketchup, nine times out of ten, it's probably going to be Heinz, versus a customer that's looking for a new energy drink. Where yeah, you could have a Celsius, you could have a Monster, you could have all these different ones. And there's always new ones coming out. So how do you typically think about dependency with the customer? Yeah, that's that there's always new ones coming out is the biggest issue there, right? Um, I mean, it, with a lot of these, it's not... The thing we always get wrong with economic stuff is we're talking about as if it's a rational thing going from the an, an actual constraint, like a physical constraint or something. What it really is is what their behavior is going to be. So, for instance, with the example you give about the energy drinks the most important thing is availability. Like by far the most important thing is availability. It's not even close. So if Celsius is only available through ordering online and getting it in uh, packs of 24 from Amazon or something, it's never going to get a loyal following that's going to stick with it. In fact, if you drink it, you like it and everything, you're going to go, okay, I like this. I'm going to find what is sold in convenience stores and supermarkets and things I already go to. That's a lot like it, and I'm going to try them out, and I'm going to use them because I don't want to order something, have it come in, have it um, keeping a supply myself this way, right? The big advantage of Coca-Cola or whatever is not just like some brand thing. It's that it's in every restaurant on every airline, I mean, Coke or Pepsi on every airline, in every movie theater, in every drive through it is everywhere that you want to be anyway. And it's just there. That's always going to be the big, big advantage. Um, with online stuff, we overlook that now because we don't even think about it. We think of course everything will be everywhere because you'll just, you know, type it in online. Um, but it's the default thing that you have there. So that's huge. Um, and then the other issues would be uh like like i said with for instance there isn't if there isn't a real big perception that like there's a good future in um you know what it, 
ketchup or cream cheese or whatever, then you're not going to have the same competition they have for energy drinks. The reason the energy drinks thing is because it's perceived to be a trend that people are adopting. And so there's tons of competition in that one particular area, which brings in new substitutes. There's from a marketing perspective, um, there's two, you know, the two, there's, there's two terrible things that you want to always avoid. Right? So the, the things you cannot compete with are new and free. As long as you can keep any competitors from offering new or free, you know, the incumbent's in a pretty good position. But new and free are impossible to compete with. And so you don't want a ton of capital going to something where they're basically giving away product, you know, um, which is free, right? And that has happened in some industries, basically. And there's no way to compete with that. And you can't compete with new. There's really nothing you can do about that. Um, so that is also a problem. And those are the two things that if anyone could put whatever they want in an ad and they can't because the product, you know, doesn't reflect it, but what they would like to put in is new comma free and then whatever. Um, and they get as close as possible to saying that in some very competitive markets, it can get close to that, you know, that there's always seems like there's something new coming out, whether it's the shape of the can and the energy drink things or what it, the claims that it has, or the just totally new brands that people will try out. And then um, in some industries, and this is more the online thing, you get closer to the free that you can't compete with. Um, on offline things that have significant costs, you're at least protected from the free issue. No one's dumb enough to try to sell uh, ketchup or uh, cream cheese or something at significantly below cost, right? Um, so you at least have that. They're aware enough of their costs. They have an idea. It's not like a software thing where if they get millions of customers, their costs will be low, but if they don't, they won't be. Um, so those are your advantages with that. And then with new, that's why a commodity thing is the best, right? Buffett's talked about this. Uh, a consumer commodity is the thing you want because how do you say I have something new um, in something like ketchup or cream cheese? I mean, you can. There's little things that you can do, but there's not a lot. Most of them are differentiation things. They're not, there's a new best way of doing this. There's a, oh, there's that, but, and you try to take off like a little niche of it. Oh, we have the one that doesn't have any of the bad stuff in it. That's all the processing. We have the one that's this kind of style, that kind of thing. That's this country or this, whatever. Um, you take in a slightly different direction and then you can tap into a smaller market, but it's pretty hard to do that where you say there's a new way to do this. Um, and that's even true for some things that some online companies have big advantages in. It's unclear what that would be. Like, you know, if someone tried to convince you about a better way to search than what Google has, it, it might be pretty difficult because it would it, it's not easy to introduce a new way that what's a new spreadsheet look like, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. you have how can you do new without also doing this is still the same product? You need new but not so strange, so foreign. So the ones that are scary are the ones that are like the energy drink ones. It's fairly easy to say this is close enough to something you've had before that you know about you know, and, uh, but it's different and to put it available for people to buy. So, um, in consumer products, there's a lots of ones that can do that where you recognize as part of that category, but it has that, um, added to it, uh, the, this new idea added to it. Does it ever make you nervous or would it make you nervous to invest in this new concept that the larger companies that have the distribution, that have the mind share, that have the branding power, 
could really just copy your product and do their own version of it. That's... I mean, look at like Facebook, for example, like with Snapchat. I mean, Facebook's mm -hmm. basically copied everything that that Snapchat has done, and now they're copying TikTok and even YouTube. They have their own version of <laughs> well, TikTok. It's just that one person comes up with something new. They're like, oh, wow, a lot of people like this. Let's implement this into what we're doing. We already have the brand, the members, the volume of people that use our product. It's pretty simple to uh, just roll it out. Yeah, well, you know this about me. Um, if the answer is we have the best way of doing this, we have the best mousetrap, then I don't like that business. That's the worst advantage that you could possibly have is that we have the best way of doing this. The engineering thing that this is the best engineered product that does this is not good to have in a, in a capitalist you know, market because you just copy that and no one cares about that. I mean... That's not the advantage that you can have that lasts. That doesn't make sense. Everyone will copy that. That's, in fact, what progress is for everything is that we'll all agree. I mean, take cars. Everyone now makes the yeah. same cars. In the beginning, they made 2,000 different kinds of cars that all work different ways. And uh, that was sort of became the, the prototype for, okay, this is what the, the paradigm of cars is going to be. And then everyone just settled on that, and that's what it was. That's true for any of these things. There's a bunch of arbitrary decisions that they can make in engineering something to be one way or another, and eventually we'll all uh, have it down to a standard that we'll use. Um, definitely having some better way of doing something isn't going to work. What those things, in some cases, what they do, right? And so this is where, like, I don't know Snapchat and stuff well enough. In some cases, you can have an advantage that attracts people that then turns into something else. So for instance, if you can take that and turn it into a community that's there, then the the uh, social liquidity that we're talking about before, the fact that everyone, uh, that if you want to be on it, everyone's on it, that you care about. It, it doesn't matter outside of your group of who you care about uh, dealing with, but that there's enough people on that they will then be, uh, that you'll have uh, the, sort of like we're talking about with Uber, Lyft or whatever. Once you reach a certain level in which uh, it's on demand that there's enough people there. Um, then you have a big, then it, then it works, but the actual method for what got the people there in the first place doesn't really matter. I mean, I don't think that usually matters. Sometimes it might matter for advertising things and all that. But when we talk about these, what are media outlets, really, these things that sell advertising, it doesn't really matter what got them there in the first place. It's a place that holds a lot of people and you get to put things in front of their eyeballs. You know, that's it. What is Facebook? What does it do? It can change to be something totally different than what it originally was. As long as it always has a large number of people there, that's all it has to be. You know? Um, it's a radio station, TV, magazines, whatever. They're not anything like what they were in the beginning. But they have, they're a place to hold a lot of people and show uh, ads to them. And so you could turn like some way of getting a lot of people there in the first place as your advantage if you can then keep them there. Right. But just having something that people like using as like a tool, that's not going to work that well. And I know that in the very beginning with Snapchat, that was kind of what it was, is that um, that's all that it was, is that here's a, a basically like we we're saying, like a tool. Here's the best way of doing mm -hmm. this kind of thing. And that, of course, has to then transform into something else. So red flags pop up in your head when a company will say we're the best at doing X. Right. What would you consider to be the best advantage that? you would look for in a company then? Oh, I mean, the, the best advantages are, um, well, a lot of the best advantages are chicken the egg type advantages that they have where it's hard for someone else to copy it because of the difficulty that it would have to do with them 
engaging in the same process. Um, being a standard is very helpful. That's one of the most helpful ones. So just a standard that what you care about is, we've talked about this in a few different ones, but as an example, let's say you really like Heinz or you don't like it or whatever. Um, you, you've had it before. Other people have had it before. If you purchase it, uh, take it to some barbecue, um, it will be accepted there. It's standard and acceptable that way. Um, when we talked about movie studios, this is a big one because I've talked about that with the distribution advantage. The really big advantage that they have, major studios, and so there's a handful of them, is that if they say they're going to do something, that they're going to make this movie and they put it on the calendar, people believe it really will be released to a huge number of theaters on that date. And so then it becomes a movie that people are willing to, um, all the people involved are willing to be involved to actually create it, to put the money into it from all the financing to each of the people involved in making it, that this is going to be something that is actually made. If you do the exact same thing and you try to do it on spec through some independent thing, it would not get made because the making of it isn't going to happen without the idea of how you're going to release it. Um, that sounds silly. You'd think, okay, well, we could do, we can create it all first, and then once it's of a certain quality, then we can release it. But the fact that you just have something that's, um, that is as good a product doesn't really mean anything unless you're sure that you can release it. So what happens there is, in the first place, no very good product will be made without the guarantee that it'll be released that way. So it's like I said, chicken and egg problem. Because we can release it and we will uh, at the scale that you need, now it can be have all the things that it needs to make it good. We just are going to act like it's good, and then we can reverse engineer that back to we'll create something that's good enough to deserve that. But if you don't get the belief from the beginning that it's going to be released as if it's something of quality, then you won't be able to create something of quality for it. Um, that's something that you see in that industry, and that's common in other things too. That's why I think the... Um, a lot of times those are some sort of distribution advantage that you have there. And that's tricky on the online things that we talked about because theoretically, I guess people could say, well, there's like no, um, people could discover something, right? It's kind of hard to see what, you know, how big an advantage is or isn't that way because there's some new service people could discover it. But will they really? You know? The actual creation of it can't possibly be that costly. Any of the things that we've talked about that became huge uh, businesses with big moats, most of the actual things that created the advantage in the first place were not big, but um, they uh, it was the discovery of it over time from there. And now it's a question of how you discover those things. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. I am going to add this uh, slide deck in the show notes. So if you want to get access to that, go on YouTube and click it. It'll be a Google Drive. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Best place to get everything that we shoot out into the world is to follow me on Twitter, which is at Focused Compound. I'll thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, give us a rating review, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.